the first uh, person that he meets there that we know of in Scripture is a lady by the name of Lydia. And the Bible describes her as a businesswoman. She was uh, a seller of purple, the, the Bible says. And uh, she is also his first convert. She's the first one to get saved under his ministry in Macedonia. But Paul does something in Philippi that he does not do in any of the other uh, cities that he comes to. And that is, uh, if you take time to read most of his letters that talk about uh, when he started the churches, um, it, it deals with oftentimes he would go into a city and he would, the first place he would go would be to the synagogue. And he would begin teaching in the synagogue. And that was usually his practice. Uh, but when he came to Philippi, from what we understand, there's no mention of a synagogue here. In fact, there's probably very little Jewish influence or presence here. Uh, mostly all Gentiles, I would consider, uh, based on the just what's not said in the book, I think we would get an idea. And the fact of the location and, and how the city had come about. Philippi had a very strong Roman presence there and uh, had a, a very big influence from the Roman Empire. Uh, it was named after Philip II. This was uh, Alexander the Great's dad, father, if you know a little bit about world history. Um, this is how the city came to be. It had been in existence prior to that and had had a, a foreign name that I can't pronounce um, that meant joy or well. And uh, when Alexander the Great conquered that area, he named it after his father, and they changed the name of it to Philippi. And uh, that's how uh, this church uh, the city got its name, and so we have uh, our book Philippians because of that. <coughs> um, there's basically four sections to the book, and they're easily divided because there's also four chapters in the book. And each chapter actually is its own division. So unlike some of the other books we've looked at where there have been multiple chapters or we've broken the sections down by subject matter, uh, this particular book has been uh, well divided already by its chapters. Um, to indicate specific things that Paul addresses and deals with. Let's start in chapter number 1, and we're going to look at verse number 1 for a moment. The Bible says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. So, uh, both by internal evidence here in chapter 1 and verse 1, and also any external evidences that can be found, it is strongly considered that Paul is the human author, the one that penned this letter, um, some of his other books, there was some uh, the, uh, opportunity for people to say, well, he dictated it, somebody else penned it, wrote it. Uh, this one's one that Paul wrote. Uh, they're pretty well uh, certain of this. It could have been that Timothy might have helped with penning some of it, but Paul's the author of the book, the human author of it. And uh, we know that uh, pretty confidently. There's very little doubt of that among people who know these kinds of things and do archaeological studies and historical books. They pretty well know that this is... Uh, a book that can very, very clearly be given to the Apostle Paul uh, as the author. And um, he uh, is writing in, actually, uh, during his third missionary journey, uh, as he's going through that, he gets uh, arrested and he's taken to Rome and is imprisoned at Rome. And while he is there is the time that he writes the book at Philippi, uh, to the church at Philippi. And uh, he, you're going to see here in just a moment in chapter one, he's going to tell of his. Or I'm sorry, in chapter yeah, in chapter one, he's going to tell of his own circumstances, what he's going through. And when the church uh, knows about this, he, they they caught word of this before he wrote this letter. Uh, they had caught word that he was imprisoned at Rome. They send a young man by the name of Epaphroditus to him, and just to try to be a help to him and encouragement to him. They sent some monetary help uh, to be an encouragement. 
And while he was there, Epaphroditus got sick. Paul refers to it in another portion of Scripture that he had written that he was sick unto the point of death, nigh unto death, and he almost died from it. Uh, he does recover, and when he recovers, Paul had written this letter, and he sends it back in the hand of Epaphroditus back to the church at Philippi. And so this is how Philippi got their letter from Paul. Uh, we divide it into four sections. The first section is chapter number one. In chapter one, Paul gives an accounting of his present circumstances, where he's at. Uh, of course, he is in prison at this point. He starts off by expressing his gratitude uh, and um, uh, the joy that he has in hearing of the faithfulness of the folks there in, in Philippi. Um, and then he begins to talk about his own imprisonment. And uh, even though he's imprisoned, he rejoices. And this is interesting uh, how uh, Paul does this. Because we would look at the circumstances Paul's in and say, how can he rejoice in these things? This isn't the first time the church at Philippi has been made aware of Paul's rejoicing during his suffering. Um, when Paul first established the church on his second missionary journey, and he meets with uh, Lydia and there's some other ladies that come together, and really it, it started out of a ladies group is where the church started from. And um, while he's there, he leads a young lady to the Lord and cast the devil out of her. And when he does so, the people that were making gain from her got upset and they started accusing Paul and Silas. And so they arrested them. If you all remember the story, they beat them and put them into the stocks in the prison and not knowing that they were Roman citizens. And uh, this is where we get our story of Paul and Silas singing in midnight. So Philippi, the church of Philippi, was well-versed in the, in the testimony of Paul and how he rejoiced even through the tribulations. And I'll, I want to stop for just a moment and make an application of that to our days and our times. It's, that's one of those things that we see in Scripture and we say, boy, praise the Lord, Paul was faithful in that area. But the question comes, how would I do in a situation like that? How would you do? Or let me ask it this way. How do we do when those situations come? Because the truth is some of us have been through some of those things. We've been through some persecution, maybe not to the level that Paul did, maybe not the beatings and the imprisonment. But I look at how often I gripe and complain about the few, what I consider to be persecutions I've been through, that have had nowhere near the severity that Paul had. And I'm embarrassed at my response. And I think maybe many of us could be as well. Because Paul does something here, he rejoices in his imprisonment. And I'll tell you how he's able to rejoice. Are you ready? This, this is what Paul talks about. He's able to rejoice because in spite of his imprisonment and because of his imprisonment, both, the gospel is preached. Well, what a testimony. What a love for the gospel that I'm willing to suffer anything and still rejoice if the gospel is preached. Wouldn't that be a wonderful testimony of you and I today? That no matter what the persecution is, no matter what the hardship is, that we love the fact that the gospel is preached so much that we can rejoice in it if that's what the outcome of it is. That regardless of the persecution, the gospel is preached. 
Paul loved the gospel that strongly. In fact, he loved his own kinfolk so strongly. And he loved the Gentiles so strongly that he was willing to endure. He even made this phrase, all things for the gospel's sake. So much so did he love the preaching of the gospel and the, the work that it did, the transforming work of converting a soul from death unto life and causing them to escape the penalty of sin that he said of his own brethren, he said, I would wish myself accursed if they would know the gospel, if they would trust the Lord as their Savior. Paul was saying, I'd rather go to hell myself if it meant someone else trusting Christ and knowing Him as their Savior. I wonder, do we love the gospel that much? Do we have that much burden for those that are lost? That no matter what our circumstances are, we can rejoice as long as the gospel is preached. As long as we know that somebody was able to hear the gospel or to be brought to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, could we rejoice in those things? I'm ashamed to say there's been opportunities for me to have that kind of testimony in my life, and I've not always been proud of my response. And I wonder oftentimes in each of our lives, are we that dedicated to the gospel's message that we are willing to rejoice no matter the cost? It's a pretty impressive testimony. I think it's a wonderful example that God gives us in this book. That even in the midst of Paul's circumstances, I mean, he's in prison at Rome. More than likely, he's going to be uh, killed as far as he knows. In fact, he doesn't know whether he's going to depart and be with the Lord or if he's going to be able to stay and serve and minister still. But one thing he's going to do, he's going to rejoice because the gospel has been given opportunity to be preached and reach the hearts of those that needed to hear it. He considers the outcome and expresses his desire uh, to depart and to be with Christ. He says that's, that's far greater. He said, I'd rather go ahead and go home and be with the Lord. If that's what my imprisonment's going to come into, I'd, that's my heart's desire. And that's what he was saying. He said, I, I'd rather just go home and be with the Lord. That's what I long for. But then he expresses the necessity that they had of him continuing in ministry. He said, nevertheless, it is more needful for you that I tarry. And uh, again, to see the desire that Paul had to go on home. I mean, he had already been through a lot. He had already been persecuted a lot. He had already been beaten and thrown in jail and in the, in the uh, deep uh, days and nights and shipwrecked and in perils. He had already been outcast. He had already been ridiculed. And I'm sure Paul is thinking, I can't wait to get to heaven and finally rest from all of this. But he said, you know what? It's more needful that I stay here and labor. And this is the heart of Paul. That while he could have taken the easy way out and said, Lord, just go ahead and take me on home, he said, Lord, really, I understand there's a bigger need. And if it's your will to leave me here and serve, then I'll continue to serve. And I'll tell you, there's not a lot of folks that have that kind of stamina in ministry. A lot of people get hurt. And they don't get hurt to the level that Paul did. And we get frustrated. And we lose heart. And we start to say, I'm just going to I'm just going to give up. I'm going to walk away. I'm amazed how many people have a little skirmish with an argument with a brother or sister in Christ or some little issue in the church. And they storm out of the church and say, I'm done. I'm through with it. Oh, I tell you, we don't even know what it is to suffer yet. And I'm thankful that we have in our Bible a testimony of at least a man 
who says, I'm willing for the Gospel's sake to endure all these things. I'll endure them. I'll even do it with rejoicing because the Gospel is preached. What a testimony. And Paul does this. He teaches all of this in, uh, in uh, chapter number 1. Let's look very quickly as we look down in verse number 15. We'll see this. Uh, we'll start in verse 14. I'm sorry. And many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident by my bonds are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So it caused others to be encouraged by his testimony to speak with boldly uh, the Bible and, and, the, and the gospel message and without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife and some of goodwill. The one preacheth Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add to add affliction to my bonds but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit in Christ Jesus. Notice as we come down to verse number 26, you can read the rest of this. Uh, and I love, there's so many, we're going to look at a key verse here in verse 21. It's one of our key verses this time. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But I want to point your, uh, your attention down to verse number, um, uh, verse number uh, 27. As he exhorts them, now this is not a corrective measure, this is an exhortation to them. He says, only let your conversation. So after he deals with uh, his response to his circumstances... He says, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation, that of God. For unto you it is given on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, now here to be, uh, now here to be in me. He says, listen, folks, I don't know if I'm going to stay or I'm going to go. He said, there's been some affliction. He said, let me, let me charge you, let me exhort you in this area. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I think what a testimony. What a testimony. The second chapter, this is our second division of the book, Paul appeals to them to have the mind of Christ. He speaks of them in the end of chapter 1 that uh, their conversation needed to be uh, in unity. And he speaks of that uh, uh, a little bit in verse number 27. He says, "...only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Whether I come and see you or else be present, that I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast." in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So he's dealing here with unity. When we get to verse chapter number 2, he tells them how they are to be in a spirit of unity. Because you and I both know you can't get two Christians together and get them to agree 100% on everything, even if you just had two of them. There's going to be somewhere along the line we're going to have a disagreement somewhere. How can there then be unity? And this is what he deals with. He says, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit. Again, dealing with, with unity here. If any bowels and mercies. 
Fulfill ye my joy, that ye may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife, or what? Vainglory. This is a prideful or a haughty attitude. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And then he stops, he switches gears, and he gives us the supreme example of Scripture of humility. He says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Did Jesus have the right to say, I am God? Absolutely, because He was God, wasn't He? Did He have every right to say, I have all the glory and all the praise due to me as God? Absolutely He did. But I want you to notice what it says in verse 7. But made himself of what? No reputation. And took upon him the form of what? A servant. It was made in the likeness of, and being found in fashion as a man, he, what does it say? Humbled himself. When the Bible tells us in verse number 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, he's not just speaking of having the mind of Christ in every aspect of the infinite mind of Christ. He's saying, I want you to have the mind of Christ in this area at least. A spirit of humility. God who had every right, Jesus Christ who had every right to claim God, Godship, to come to earth, to demand obeisance, to demand reverence, to demand that they worship Him, didn't come that way, did He? He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death. The Bible says, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name. There is a day coming when every knee, the Bible says, is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But with all of that honor and all of that glory, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself said, I'm going to lay it aside and I'm going to humble myself and limit myself to the form of a man. And he was made in the likeness of man. And while he was 100% man, he still was 100% God. And I'm so thankful for that. He did something no other person could do. He lived a perfect life without sin and offered himself willingly to be our sacrifice. Folks, if that is not the epitome of humility, I don't know what is. That an infinite, holy, righteous God would come and stand in the place of wicked, depraved, and sinful man. Why would He do such a thing? The only answer I have is because He loved us. And if you ask me why, I can't tell you. Only God Himself knows the answer to that. Unity comes from humility. You know, the Bible says only by pride cometh contention. When there's strife and there's disunity, it's because of pride. Paul instructs the church at Philippi. He says, folks, I want to exhort you in this thing. Let this mind be in you, 
I, I want there to be a unity of spirit, and I want you guys to be a solid church. I want you all to stay together and not have divisions among you. Let, let this mind be in you also in Christ Jesus. Have the mind of Christ. Have the, the spirit of humility about you. And then he goes on to say in verse number 14 of chapter 2, or, I'm sorry, verse 13, excuse me. He says, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and a perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. He gives this testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he gives two other testimonies in the end of chapter number 2. And the reason he does this, I think, and this is my opinion of why he does this, is it would be easy sometimes for you and I to say, well, God, well, of course Christ had humility because He was God. He's able to do that. But I'm, I'm a sinful man and I don't have the same strength that, that Christ had to do these things. So he gives two other illustrations. Of course, Christ being the supreme example. But he gives two other illustrations. He mentions, uh, he mentions Timotheus and Epaphroditus. If you take time to read the rest of chapter 2, he'll bring these two guys out and he'll show them as examples of humility. The fact that they were willing to suffer for the cause of Christ, to do things for the sake of the church and the folks that are needful of them. And uh, a wonderful, wonderful illustration there. And folks, I would say this, that I don't think it's wrong to see men and women that we look to and have some respect for because of their testimony in their life. But I'll tell you this, they are human. And if you put your eyes too much on men alone... It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when you'll be disappointed. And you may even become disillusioned about some things, and you may even become bitter about some things. There's some men in my life that I have looked up to for many, many years over the years, and some of them for almost a whole ministry. And then, as they got close to the end, did things that just caused me to be crushed and crumbled because of the life that they had chosen and the things that they had done as they got later in, in years. I'll tell you this, it's good to look at folks as, a, as an encouragement, but don't make them the supreme example. There's only one, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that we can look to every single time as an example and never be disappointed in. He will never cause us to become disillusioned. He will never cause us to become bitter in the things of the Lord. And so Paul uses all three of these examples. Of course, he spends the vast majority of the time speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ and His exampleship. But he does offer some men as, as I think, a reason for the church to say, if they can be that way, then I can too. And I think it's a wonderful help to them. And so he exhorts them to have a spirit of unity by embracing uh, humility in the mind of Christ. Uh, the third chapter, uh, third uh, section is Paul's appeal for them to have the knowledge of Christ. It almost seems like he's about to close uh, the letter. Uh, as you look at chapter number uh, 3 and verse number 1, he says, finally. And as any good Baptist preacher, he closes at least twice. Uh, but uh, you think he's about to close, and then he starts another uh, thing here. And he, he, he char charges them, he exhorts them to, uh, to have the knowledge of Christ. Um, and uh, he uh, warns them about the, the ongoing problem. And Paul is no stranger to this, as we studied uh, when we studied the book of um, Galatians. Uh, legalism was 
a rampant problem. The idea of requiring works uh, for salvation. And if you'll take time to read chapter 3, you don't have time in Sunday school this morning to read its entirety. But this is where Paul says, look, if there's anybody that's got the ability, the wherewithal, to have confidence in the flesh, it certainly would be mine, my, my life. And he's not saying this from a prideful standpoint. He just got done speaking of humility. He's saying this for the benefit of the folks in Philippi. He said, look, if, if, if legalism was a thing, if that was true, he said if anybody had a right to be confident in what they, uh, the, the, the Judaism that they had of the day uh, and the, the following and the keeping of the law, he said, I, I'm more. He said, I am a Jew of the Jew. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Uh, he says in verse 5, circumcised in the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. Uh, he goes down through uh, a list of his uh, accolades and uh, why he would be considered if you were going by works of the law, one of the top candidates, if you will. But I want you to notice his, his uh, resolution as he comes to verse 7. He says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. And so, in chapter number 3, he uses his own accomplishments in Judaism to show them the utter worthlessness of them when compared to the goal of knowing Christ. He said, I can have confidence in what I've done. But notice what he says here in verse number uh, 10. He says, that I may know Him, the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His suffering, be made conformable unto His death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. He said, I count all of this stuff that I've done, I count it but none. It is worthless when compared to knowing Christ. When compared to coming to a place that I am trusting the righteousness that God gives me rather than my own righteousness. And so he brings this to bear as he gets to the end of um, chapter number 3, that the righteousness that he has by faith is not just a mechanical obedience to the law. And it is the faith in the righteousness that God will give to him that saves. And so he takes chapter 3 to say, listen folks, I want to exhort you, be careful. He knew this doctrine was floating around. He knew this was a prevalent thing in that day. And by the way, it's a prevalent thing in the day we live, isn't it? There, there are the vast majority of religious organizations in the world today that hold to a works-based salvation. And I'm talking about not, not a, a, a 60-40 split. I'm talking about the vast majority of them. That could be why the Lord said in His earthly ministry that wide is the, is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. But narrow is the way, narrow is the gate that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Why? Because I think Christ understood and knew that the vast majority of men were going to put their salvation in their own hands, in their own confidence, to make it, to earn it on their own merit. I think the Lord knew this. And that there were going to be few that would say, Lord, I'm going to trust you by faith in you alone, not my works. And then chapter 4, he uh, appeals for them to have uh, the peace of Christ, 
and uh, he establishes the fact that peace with Christ is important to have the peace of Christ. And you can take time to read chapter 4 and see what I mean by that as you read down through there. Uh, and then he um, uh, gives the, the, the sign off, if you will. Uh, he tells how that God has given him the strength to live above his circumstances and exhorts them to do the same. Uh, the Christ of Philippians, Christ is seen as four different things in one of each in each chapter. First of all, Paul sees Christ as his life. Let's look again in chapter 1, verse 21, and we've already mentioned it. Uh, but he looks at Christ as his life. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Uh, Paul literally believed that every moment, every waking conscious thought moment of his life was to be wrapped in Christ. And if he did not have Christ then he was dead. And not necessarily physically dead, but dead uh, in uh, his spiritual walk, in his spiritual life. And by the way, uh, Christ is our life. The Bible says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in your trespasses and sins. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one that not only gave us life, but sustains us in our Christian life day by day. The chapter number 2, he pictures Christ as the model of true humility, and he does that throughout the chapter. Specifically from uh, verse uh, number 5 down through... Uh, verse number 11, and uh, he talks about Christ being uh, the model of our true humility and what we should follow after. In chapter 3, he shows Christ as the one who changes our vile body and that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. And uh, putting off the, the legalism of works and holding to faith in Christ. And then in chapter number 4, he shows Christ as the source of of Paul's power over his circumstances. He's the one that gives us strength to overcome no matter what the adversity is. All right. The keys to Philippians, the overall theme is uh, for me to live as Christ. For me to live as Christ is the overall theme. And then there are two key verses. We've already read the first one, chapter 1 and verse number 21. Uh, let's look in chapter 4 and verse number 12. Uh, chapter 4, verse number 12 is a second key verse, I think. He says this, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to uh, abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. No matter what the circumstance is, Christ is the one that gives us the strength to live above our circumstances. The key chapter, chapter number 2. And that brings us to a close here in the book of Philippians, and I hope that will be a help to you. All right, let's stand together and we'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we are so grateful once again to have your word in our hands. Lord, many of us have more than one copy of it. May we 